0: Quick disclaimer, there's some, there's some stronger-than-usual violence this week. It's all kind of comical and over-the-top, but it is there. Please check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're telling the story of Eric and Enid from Arthurian legend, and we'll see how the couple that battles ogres together stays together. The creatures this week are the elephant men, who are neither elephants nor men, but maybe the most convincing space aliens I've ever heard of. <laughs> This is Myths and Legends, episode 323, Ladies' Night. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This is a standalone story in the Arthurian legends, and not one that will be in our book coming out next year. Written by creation de Troyes, the 12th century French writer of the original Lancelot story, the Percival story, and our source for the very first story we've told on this podcast, today's work is every bit as weird and as wonderful as those, while still taking his trademark human perspective. We'll jump in in the middle of a contest in King Arthur's court, and we'll meet brave Sir Eric, a prince and a knight of the round table, being brave. Brave Sir Eric ran away. Not because he was scared, he wasn't scared. He was a knight of King Arthur's Round Table, he didn't get scared. This was a strategic retreat. The fact that it included weeping was immaterial. The weeping, it was about a sad story he had heard earlier, don't worry about it. It all started earlier that day, when King Arthur announced a hunt for a white stag in the Forest of Adventures. This was a special hunt, because when someone got the white stag, they must then celebrate by kissing the most beautiful maiden in court. This was a lose-lose situation. Each knight thought their own paramour was the most beautiful. So, when the winner of the stag didn't kiss that particular woman, well, they might as well be insulting her. If they did kiss her, well, why are you kissing my wife? Even the famously hot-headed Gawain could recognize this for the terrible idea that it was. But King Arthur, I guess not having enough inter-knight conflict in his court, said that it was tradition and began the hunt. Eric's brave and honorable retreat, though, had nothing to do with the hunt and everything to do with the mythological dwarf. You see, like Gawain... Eric also didn't want to kick the hornet's nest of honor-drunk men with weapons. So, when he spotted the queen, Guinevere, and one of her handmaidens riding palfreys through the woods, he fell in alongside them. They talked. Eric was the son of a king himself, so he was well-versed in courtly manners, and then, what What the handsome? I'm not up on celebrities, so I'm not going to try to, like, show you how out of touch I am and compare the people in front of him to anyone but they were objectively beautiful. The knight rode on his charger, armored, his hair effortlessly blowing in the wind, and the woman was similarly stunning. Guinevere was polite. She wanted to invite these beautiful people to King Arthur's court and, I guess, raise the per capita attractiveness of the room because Kay wasn't doing anyone any favors. So her handmaiden rode to greet them and got a whip to the face. The mythological dwarf that rode before the pair did give her a verbal warning to step back. She had no business with these beautiful people, but one look back to the queen, and one nod of approval sent the maiden riding forward. One crack of the whip, a growing bruise, and, thankfully, an avoided eye later, and the maiden passed Sir Eric as he rushed toward the dwarf, knight and the lady. Begone, bothersome dwarf! was the last brave, commanding thing Eric said to the man before he, too, got the whip. It turned out that the mythological dwarf was pulling his punches, or whips, when he hit the maiden, because when the ends found Eric's face and neck, they broke the skin. And that's where we opened, with Eric's strategic retreat. His horse slowed to a stop in front of Guinevere, and the queen pulled out a piece of cloth for him to staunch the bleeding. He said he couldn't ride against the knight unarmored, but he would not let this insult go unanswered. Guinevere didn't say that going up against the knight was ambitious. Sir Eric didn't even get to the knight when he rode last time. She did, however, point out that the trio had already disappeared around the bend in the forest trail. Eric swore he could never return to the castle at Cardigan and make it back here. They would be leagues away. He needed to leave now and find armor on the way. He would avenge this. As Eric trotted off after the trio, Guinevere said that plate armor, which, as people have written in, yeah, they would not have had, but the writer doesn't concern himself with these details, so neither will we. Plate armor, equal to what he left in Cardigan, could cost the 2023 equivalent of 100,000 US dollars, or 80,000 pounds. He was just gonna try to find that? But Eric was already out of sight and he wasn't the only one making poor decisions that day. When Guinevere returned with the news, she learned that King Arthur got the white stag. So that meant, yeah, kissy-kissy time. The wise, safe, and just good choice would be to choose his own wife, the queen. It instantly became clear that Arthur was not going to make that choice. There was already grumbling among the knights that if their lady was chosen, and especially if she wasn't, they would resort to ash lances and swords to settle the slight and or insult. I would say that they're acting like children, but I've literally watched children work through their problems better than this. Guinevere, seeing a way to, if not stop, delay, took control of the room. She paced the elevated area just in front of the throne, saying that one of their number was still out there. Sir Eric had been dishonored and went off to make it right. They should at least wait for him to return, He didn't have any lovers, but, you know, he might have something to say about all this. Mostly because they wanted to get to feasting, but also mostly out of not wanting to get in fights to the death for no reason whatsoever, the knights and Arthur agreed. They would wait for Sir Eric to return for the king to make his kiss. Then they would get in fights to the death for no reason. When you know, you know. And Sir Eric knew that this guy was a noble. Now, I've always thought that it was fairly, I don't know, classist to say that there's a noble look. That even though the elderly man lived in abject poverty, that Eric could tell from a glance that this guy was actually a noble down on his luck. I mean, there's not a noble look, that is. They're no different from the rest of us. But for the sake of not litigating this point to death... Eric called it correctly. This guy was a noble. And when the inns and even the parts of town Eric would never dine to enter were packed with knights, Eric had to take him up on his offer. He would stay with this vavasaur this night. Then he saw Enid. There were birds and wind blowing her hair back and all that when the daughter of the Vavasor, Enid, walked in the room, informing her parents and their guest that dinner was ready. Eric was stunned. Who was that? The Vavasor, charmed by this obvious, kind, earnest, and honorable knight he had known for all of six minutes, and definitely not seen dollar signs, because Eric had the nobility look about him as well, said that, oh, her? That was his daughter, Enid. Eric was speechless. She was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, yet she was so shabbily dressed. Why? She was obvious nobility. The Vavasor said the war. He had fought with King Arthur on the continent. But the war had ravaged his own personal finances. He didn't put anyone in charge of his lands while he was gone, and everything fell into ruin. In that way, and only that way, war was terrible. Eric sat in contemplation before thinking, war knights, hey, well, yeah, why were there so many knights in town? He just followed a guy here that he was going to fight. The vavasor nodded, ah, that was the trial of the sparrow hawk. And this is kind of boring weird, it's not fun weird. Every year, they seated a sparrow hawk on the silver perch in the center of town. If any knight should claim the hawk for his lady, fighting against the others to do so, it will be agreed that she was the most beautiful. It didn't matter, though, because the same man had won three years straight. After his first win, after the people saw how brutally he beat anyone who dared to oppose him, no one challenged him the following two years. So now, he rides with his lady and his dwarf friend, stays in the best houses in town, and simply walks into the square and takes the hawk. At the mention of dwarf friend, Eric's ears pricked up, Hey! Now, the Vavasor would do anything for his family, he had said when he was describing their perilous financial situation. And then he immediately contradicted that when he unveiled his suit of armor worth at least as much as a brand new Lexus. I'm not saying I don't see why he kept the armor. It's one of a kind and likely had been in the family for generations. I'm only saying that he's definitely lying to himself and everyone else when he says he would do anything for his family maybe he knew he was saving that armor for an important day. For a day when a stranger would ride into town and honor his own daughter with the combat and the Sparrowhawk trial. This was his family's last, best hope. Sir Eric was the son of King Locke. If, if Eric chose to marry her, because of her noble bloodline, Enid would be a queen. And for the record, Enid was just as infatuated with Eric as he was with her. She was totally on board. The story doesn't make this super clear up front, it definitely gets to it later, but decides to eschew the romance of two young people mad about each other for all the horse trading that is medieval noble marriage contracts. The next morning, after mass, Eric rode into the square with Enid just behind him, but Eider, the knight, was already there, just about to pluck the sparrow hawk from its perch present it to his lady. Lady, be gone, be satisfied with another bird, for you have no right to this one, Eric hissed. The crowd gasped. Fair one, come forward, Eric waved to Enid. Take that bird, it is yours. Eric made it clear that he was prepared to uphold the contest, and Eider, despite having, despite just having blow-dried his hair, grumbled when he put his helmet on. He wouldn't care too much about his hair when, a long hour later, Eric brought his sword down on Eider's helm, slicing the metal, the beautiful hair, and, quote, the bones of his head. It didn't hit his brain, though, if you're wondering. But not without the desire to. You see, Eric, battered and streaming with blood himself, screamed out about Eider's dwarf friends shaming him in the forest the other day, in front of the queen, and Eider begged. Please, he yielded. Eric needed to do the honorable thing and spare him. And yeah, I can't remember if we've talked about it, but just to refresh, Eric could have killed him, but since the knight asked for mercy, it would have been extremely dishonorable for him to do so. Like, he could kill him, but he couldn't. Not really. So Eric spared Eider, son of Nut, and told him that, out of penance, he was to go to King Arthur's court, still hunting at Cardigan, and present himself to the queen as a captive. It wasn't far. Eric made it lurking after Eider in under a day. Eider bowed. He said he would. He, his mythological dwarf, and his maiden would present themselves as captives. Eric said, well, first, he was only capturing Eider. The other two were free to do whatever they wanted. And two, it's not great to refer to people in the possessive way. Eider said, whoa, it wasn't like that. They were free to go whenever they wanted, right? Everybody? Eider turned to see the maiden and the dwarf that accompanied him already gone. They apparently just learned that they were free to go. Eider took off on a horse with his head split open and his brain exposed toward Cardigan. <laughs> We'll see what happens when Eider arrives in King Arthur's court, but that will be right after this.
1: This episode is made possible by PWC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PWC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net-zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet it's all part of the new equation learn more at thenewequation.com. this episode is made possible by pwc a robot may not be coming for your job but competitors are coming for your market share at pwc we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge reimagine operations from the cloud Fuel innovation with responsible AI and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.
0: Wow, that is wild," Kay said, looking at Eider. Gawain stood next to him in the doorway, grimacing. He had sliced a good number of brains, like a non-trivial amount of brains, but he didn't like to look at them, certainly didn't like to poke them. Oh, oh, I taste apples! Ider yelled as one of the braver squires prodded his brain. They were gathered around him sitting at a table. He had presented himself as a captive to Kay, who found him out riding and said he had a message for the queen. While he waited, they, according to the story, were marveling over his exposed brain. Okay, okay, try a different spot. Eider, son of nut, yelled. The squire poked a different spot of spongy pink mass, and Eider's head thudded on the table. He didn't move for a couple of seconds before gasping awake. Did did he go unconscious? He remembered telling the kid to poke his brain, and then he woke up with a bloody nose. Maybe don't poke that particular spot again. Gawain waved to a man who entered the room. He was a doctor, right? The man nodded. Barber, same difference. Gawain told him to go take a look at the knight sitting at the table and maybe bandage that up before it got poked anymore. Why am I here? Gawain heard behind him. He and Kay spun to see Guinevere. And why is that man's brain exposed? Ugh. They feared the worst when he said he fought Eric, worried that if this was the man who won, Eric must be dead. But Eider told him that Eric was fine. He was on his way with his new wife. And yeah, wife. Sir Eric, son of King Locke, asked for Enid's hand. And though it wasn't up to her, she was excited to marry him. They rode the following day to be married at King Arthur's court. And the wedding was beautiful. The king of the giants came, the king of the dwarves which as far as I know, this is his only appearance in King Arthur's legends, and King Arthur gave his own sketchy seal of approval when Enid's beauty settled the brewing revolt. Before the wedding, everyone agreed. Enid was the most beautiful woman any of them had ever seen. The king could kiss her and no one would have any problem with that except everyone who wasn't a man enamored by Enid's beauty. Eric, in the interest of not reopening his wounds and maybe fealty, Agreed. And the king gave Enid a peck on the cheek. It was truly wedded bliss for Eric and Enid. So much so that people were surprised when Eric didn't wake up early after his wedding to go hunting, preferring to spend time with his wife. And when the next quest came up, he chose to let it pass to someone else, rather than fight for the glory of competition Eric further distanced himself from King Arthur's court and the other knights, when he decided to literally distance himself from King Arthur's court and the other knights. He announced that he and Enid were going home. Eric wanted his father to meet Enid. King Arthur said he approved, and he eagerly awaited Eric's return. Eric nodded, yeah, okay. It was a long ride, but the pair was safe. They had 60 knights and horses with them, which just sounds like a huge management headache like so many bathroom breaks and they were happy because they had each other king lak was ecstatic to see his son when he arrived rushing out draped in furs it had been years he sent eric to arthur's court when he was a squire of 17 and he returned a married man of 25 king lak knew how the world worked he knew that eric to have any honor and respect from his peers had needed to go and serve under Arthur, to train and learn from the greatest in the land. But there wasn't a day that passed that King Locke didn't think about what his son was doing. If he was feasting with the round table, or shivering around a campfire, or lying dead in the infirmary, a messenger en route to inform him. Now, though, he was back, and Locke could see that the long years apart had been worth the gray hair they had brought. To Locke's joy, Eric wasn't going anywhere, not anytime soon. His son, it seemed, had sowed his wild oats. He was finally ready to settle down. Really settle down. Like, sleep until noon every day, staying in bed until hunger bit at the stomachs of he and Enid settled down. And it was bliss. The end. Now I'm just kidding. It, It was bliss, though. For Eric... You see, Eric was the son of the king. No one would dare speak a word in his presence about him, about how he had changed. He was once the pride of his kingdom, going off to join the round table. Now, though, he spent all day in bed. He was a recreant. This, of course, wasn't because this was what the prince chose, or this was the life that he valued, and it was none of their business. No, it was because of her, Enid. Before her, Eric would brave any battle, take on any quest. Now, he could barely be bothered to send other knights out in his stead. Like I said, they didn't say these words to Eric. They didn't say them to Enid, either. But they made sure she heard them. The nobles and the knights, the servants and the squires, they all looked at Enid with disdain and contempt. At first, It was just a stray word or a sentence uttered louder than a whisper. Then, they became bolder. All of her ladies-in-waiting were poisoned against her. She had no one except her husband and his father, the king who was more than happy to have Eric stay with them forever. She, she cried at night or when he slept or when she thought he slept. Like I said, Eric and Enid were close, Unlike some nobles in that time, they not only shared a room, they shared a bed and Eric could tell something was wrong with his wife. The fact that he heard her sobbing several mornings before he opened his eyes also helped to clue him in. Sitting up in bed, he took her hands into his. Honey, what is wrong? She sighed. She had something to tell him. The door slammed against the stone as Eric flew through it. She pleaded for him to wait, please. She didn't mean it like that. It happened so fast. He didn't even wait for her to finish. She told him that he was an object of scorn among the knights and the ladies, among the nobles and I, everyone. They called him a coward and a layabout. A shame. That only seemed to raise a chuckle from him. It was only when she said that she was scorned because of him, that she wished she had never left her home to come here, that his face twisted in rage. He commanded her to stop speaking, and she did, but not because of the command, but because she had never seen him so grim and serious, so harsh with her. He told her to have her palfrey ready. They would ride at once. She shook her head. Ride? Where? He didn't answer. He stood, threw open the door with such force that it splintered and shook and stormed down the stairs. She was left alone. He never let her finish. She was going to say that she only regretted leaving her home because of the harm her love had obviously caused him. Because she loved him more than anything, she would rather endure the pain of not being with him than bring him to shame because of her. And she did feel like that. At first... Earlier that day, she had sat atop her palfrey. Her cheeks streaked with the salt of her tears. As the king, Locke, pleaded to know why Eric was doing this. Why, where was he going? At least take way too many nights. It's dangerous to go alone. Eric turned, speaking to his father but glaring at his wife, Enid. He wasn't going alone. His lady wife would endure everything he did on this road. Locke begged his son, please, at least tell him why Eric was doing this. Eric wrenched the reins from his father's hands, turned, and rode off down the road. Enid shook her head and followed. You will not speak to me on this ride unless I speak to you first. We will ride rapidly. Let's go. Eric called back and spurred his horse to a trot. Enid followed. In the past six months... Enid had tried to learn everything she needed to be a knight's lady. Her mother had sold the horses when she was still a toddler, before her father returned from the war, so that they could settle the father's debts. Riding wasn't natural to her, but she learned just how unnatural it was for a human to ride a horse for hours on end when, blistered and bruised, she stepped down from the saddle come twilight. It was time to camp. Camp. It's not that she couldn't, but... Why? It seemed almost pointless, she and Eric being out here, and she had spent her life in poverty until Eric came along. There were times when they barely had wood for a fire. Now this knight was out here for no reason, play acting like... She froze. A shadow had moved on the edge of the campsite. There was someone out there. Three someones. In the darkness of the forest... The armor caught the last light of day. They were slinking up behind Eric. Three highwaymen. Three knights that made their living by robbery. They were going to kill Eric. She remembered what he had said, but she also knew that she couldn't stand there and watch the man she loved get cut down by brigands. She cried out, "A behind you. The two that were advancing in front of the third stopped dead, like literally dead, when, with one motion, Eric drew his sword and swung it in an arc, beheading them. The third man, the knight that had dragged the other two into this life, saw this and bolted. You were to not say anything. Do you really have so little esteem for me that you think I need your help? Eric barked at Enid as he mounted his horse, lance in hand. She said she was sorry that she saved his life. He sneered, see that it doesn't happen again. The silhouette of her husband, Eric, ran the fleeing brigand knight through in front of the last light of the sun and tossed his body from the horse. He grabbed the other two and ponied the geldings, bringing them back to Enid before resuming stacking logs on the fire as if nothing had happened. The bodies of their attackers still turning the dirt to mud with their blood. We'll see Eric and Enid's first fight continue to go terribly wrong, but that will, once again, be right after this. The next day... Enid faltered. Her sleep was light and fitful. With each sound of the forest at night, she thought she saw armor shining in the moonlight, more knives coming for them. There weren't, of course, they were fine. But by the time she accepted that, the horizon was warming with the soft light of morning. When the next five bandit knights arrived that day, subsequent wayward knights stalking up behind her husband as the pair rested on the road she couldn't keep herself from crying out, though she barely had a voice. You see, that morning, she had never worked so hard in her life. Eric had commanded her to drive the horses in front of them. Even a man as rich as Eric wouldn't pass up on three young horses. With a word from her, Eric grunted in disappointment, unsheathed the sword, and way too much violence later, like, for real, Whoever de Detroit was writing this for was super into the violence because we have exposed bones, severed windpipes, lances sticking out of all sorts of places. The fifth one, the fifth knight, surrendered. And after Eric stripped him of his weapons and armor, he sent the horse to join the other seven. And he and Enid continued down the road. But Enid, Enid couldn't stop thinking about what she saw. She had never seen anyone die before. And now she had seen seven, and they died badly. The brutality, the terror of life out here, when only strength, experience, and luck could save you. And if you didn't have one, you couldn't foster the other two. She didn't sleep that night, not for terror, but for the horses. She had to keep track of all eight of them. And they weren't all friends. When they saw a manor on the horizon, the following day, Enid breathed, finally, respite. When they saw the count who lived there gaze upon her, his passion souring when he saw Eric riding close behind, Enid thought that she would rather stay on the road. However, he wasn't all bad at first, and his manners toward her were pleasant enough, He invited the pair in and asked Eric, but did the knight mind if the count sat next to his lovely wife? Eric smiled. Not at all. Eric was chatting with the servants and enjoying his meal when, a few feet away, Enid felt the hot breath in her ear. He doesn't love you, the count whispered. He knew she couldn't say anything back, so he continued. You aren't being treated the way a lady deserves to be treated. I can treat you that way. Stay here with me. Be mine, and you'll never have to drive horses again, or whatever else he's having you do. The Count said for her to nod, and he would have Eric killed in front of her. Right now. She didn't nod. She didn't do anything. She only hesitated. But this was enough for the Count to fly into a rage, Asking, still in a whisper, did she not think him worthy of her love? She was too proud, and... uh, This is where Creation Detroit, the writer, kind of launches into a... nice guy rant. You know what I mean. Because this Count was a nice guy, and offered to have her husband murdered in front of her face, and to take care of her, he feels that he has a right to her. Creation further goes into cringe territory when he talks about how women only want men who are mean to them, and any man who flatters and praises only earns their contempt. Despite the Count treating her like a vending machine of affection, where, if he gave her enough niceness coins, she had to give him a prize, Enid knew an opportunity when she saw one. No, not yet, she whispered back. His eyes grew wide. She looked to make sure Eric wasn't listening. She turned, barely making a noise, but with the count watching her lips with uh, way too much interest, the count saw the way he treated her. She was through with it. Making a point or just raging against her, it didn't matter. He didn't get to treat her like this. If the count dispatched her knightly husband... She would be his, completely his, but it had to be tonight, not right now. He killed eight men on the road. He was as smart as he was ruthless, the Count rose. Tonight, then, she would be free of him, and then she would be his, before Eric's body was cold. The Count apologized to Sir Eric. He had to leave unexpectedly. A new opportunity had arisen that needed his immediate attention and preparation. Sir Eric nodded, of course. He left the room, and Enid smiled. Okay, look, I told you to only speak when... Eric screwed himself up in anger when... Finally alone, his wife opened her mouth to speak, but Enid cut him off. You're going to die tonight, Enid said. What? Enid told him that the count planned to cut his throat at dinner, but she managed to delay him. Eric sat stunned. This man was a vassal of his father. He wouldn't dare. Enid said, okay, sure. Then wait. Wait for him to send a hundred knights kill you and take me by force to be his wife. Eric looked at her. Okay, they will leave at midnight. A few minutes after midnight, the pair heard the shouts from the castle, from the knights that had positively eviscerated the pile of pillows they thought was Sir Eric. Leaving so early, they heard. The mounted pair, Eric on his charger, and Enid on her palfrey, spun to see the count on his own horse. I suspected that it was all too easy with the lady, the count said. He saw why Eric was doing what he was doing. He snapped his fingers and a dozen knights marched out from the darkness behind him. Go, Eric yelled and spurred his own horse onward, crashing through the wall of knights and the weapons glancing off his horse's armor. Enid followed through the opening It was minutes before the thunder of horses shook the ground less than half a league behind them. Knights, a hundred, incoming. Can we lose them in the forest? Enid yelled. I have told you not to disobey me. Can nothing I say correct your behavior? Eric screamed. Nope, Enid said and ducked low to avoid the branches. They couldn't lose the count and his knights. Not completely but it was enough that Eric only had to kill the Seneschal, who had ridden ahead of the group, but not without taking wounds himself. The Count called out a challenge. Just as Eric was about to slip away completely, and though Enid begged him just to follow her, Eric ignored her. The Count, as the story says, wasn't wearing armor. Whether he was arrogant or just didn't think he would face Eric was irrelevant, as he laid dying, Eric's sword through his chest, though it didn't come at a light personal cost for Eric. The count was well trained, a ruthless fighter, and he refused to yield. Using his own knives to cut beneath Eric's armor, as the knight tried to show his opponent mercy, only a killing blow could stop the count. Enid helped her husband, Sir Eric, atop his horse, and the pair rode off. Eric's wounds invited their own wound friends when, riding for nearly a day, they arrived near another castle. And another knight, seeing him approach, rode out to challenge. In these times, your resume was who you fought. And though the lord in the castle, named Gwivret the Short, meant absolutely no actual harm to Eric, he was a knight of the round table just riding by. Gwivret the Short wanted to challenge the man. The challenge couldn't go unanswered, so... A fight began They ended up dehorsing each other and their swords cut the flesh under their armor. Even though Eric was bitterly wounded from an earlier fight, he soon had Guivret the short on the ground, sword to his neck, and the man was begging for mercy. Eric had been riding since midnight and hadn’t slept in over 30 hours. He gladly accepted Guivret’s surrender. Thankfully, Guivret had a doctor in a castle. That doctor and castle were 15 miles, or 24 kilometers away. So after a fun ride with even more open wounds, Eric and Enid arrived. Unlike with the previous count, there was no murder dessert this time. And Gwivret was glad to help Eric and Enid in any way he could. In a few days, Eric's wounds bandaged, he and Enid were back on the road, despite no one really understanding why they were traveling in the first place. The days rolled on, Eric's wounds reopened even if his mouth didn't, and he and Enid rode in silence. The battles were as sporadic as they were traumatizing, with Eric putting his lance through the eye, and then brain, of an attacking giant, and splitting the other in half, head to navel. All that took its toll, though. And one afternoon, Enid saw him slump down in his saddle. She dismounted and ran to him, and her hands came away slick. All his wounds had reopened. She couldn't stop the bleeding. She took him into her arms and wailed. Not far away, a count's ears pricked up when he heard the cry of a lady in the forest. Chivalry! Chivalry demands we help a lady in need, he cried, and commanded his knights to their horses. Are we sure it isn't courtesy that demands we help a lady in need? The knights pointed out, oh, oh, nope. This episode is long enough and doesn't warrant a nuanced discussion of the distinctions between courtesy and chivalry, and people can just probably look it up. Cool. To the horses, then. The Count's face fell. Was the knight sure? His knight rose from the body of Eric, blood having stopped flowing from his countless wounds. It took all of his medical knowledge, but yes, Sir Eric, a knight of the round table, was dead. Do you actually have a lot of medical knowledge? The count asked. The knight shook his head. Uh, cards on the table, no, but he was a knight, and he knew dead guys, and uh, this guy was dead. The count sighed. Understood, had to be sure. Enid was. inconsolable. She felt like this was all her fault, despite, you know, none of it being her fault, it being the result of her husband flying off the handle in their first fight. The Count knelt down next to her. There, there. Losing a spouse was difficult. If you love that person, no words can make it better. Right? He had never lost a spouse, he'd never even been married, but he understood that it had to be so hard. He was sorry. She nodded through tears, thanking the noble for his understanding. They sat together. Enid racked with grief and the count by her side. There was a beautiful and pervading stillness that the count fostered to help comfort the woman for 45, 50 whole seconds. The count patted Enid on the back. All right, that was enough. Stop it. Enid looked up. What? What? The Count replied that all this excessive grieving, it was, frankly, unbecoming. He understood she lost her husband, and that was tragic for sure. But it's time to move on. She said, but it was three minutes ago. The Count said, yeah, and it was time to stop living in the past. Move on. It's always darkest before the dawn. There's other fish in the sea. Oh, you know what? Yes. Move on. Other fish. Like with, I don't know, a rich, attractive noble that happens to be right next to you. Then the count gasped. He took Enid's palms, still slick with tears and blood. He would do it. He would help her. He got down on one knee beautiful woman I just rescued in the forest whose name I don't know yet the count smiled will you marry me Enid looked down in shock and pulled her hand away what? no the count squealed he turned to his men she said yes they all looked at each other but but she said they saw the cold look of their commander oh got it Their boss was getting married! They all congratulated the Count, gave the shocked and reeling Enid their best wishes, and started preparing for the wedding. The Count didn't waste any time. He had a priest ready to go and called all of his barons to his castle immediately. By that evening, the wedding was on. The candles burned. The barons were so excited for their count. This was such a great day. And the bride, ah, she was just moved to tears. Kind of a lot of tears, as it turned out. It, hmm, it kind of started to seem like she wasn't all that into this whole situation. Enid was in the Count's face now, despite him trying and failing to press down on her shoulder to get her to kneel on the fold stool in front of the priest who, uh, wasn't sure how he should respond to any of this. In the back, one of the barons nudged the other, ''Hey, uh, maybe you all talked about it first, but why is there a dead body on display up there?'' The noble said, ''Uh, we didn't talk about it, but that's her husband?'' They found her with him, and he was dead in the forest, and it was love at first sight, the Count said. Sanctuary's kind of pulling double duty tonight, though, what with the memorial and the Count's wedding. But they love each other, so... I will never love you. I fear neither your blows nor threats, and you will never make me feel anything for you, even if you claw out my eyes or skin me alive, Enid screamed. The barons looked at each other. Oh, okay... Weird love story, but then the slap. The count, face contorted in contempt, had raised his hand and struck Enid across the face. Whoa, 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 the parents said, to their credit in the actual story, stepping forward as one. That is not cool. She obviously didn't want to get married. The count did not care. He whistled and his knights stepped forward, isolating him, Enid, and the priest. They were getting married now. Except the count was so focused on getting his knights to push back the barons on the verge of revolt that he didn't notice the dead man rising in the back of the sanctuary. The one they thought had succumbed to his wounds, Sir Eric, was called back from the light by the cries of his beloved. The priest noticed... And scurried off, and when the count turned back to demand he proceed, he found Eric's sword swinging toward his head. Then, according to the book, it sliced the top of his skull and brain off. Eric looked to Enid with a smile. Hi. She ran to him and took him into her arms. She was so sorry. He said no. All this was his fault. He was sorry. Eric said he had been hurt. He had been angry. He was annoyed that he thought she would want him to have a life as a wandering knight over one with her. So he wanted to show her what that life was like. Traveling alone, sleeping on the ground, fearing for your safety every morning and night. Guys challenging you to mortally dangerous battles just to bolster their own egos. He said it looked like she wanted him to be like any other husband. So he was. He was harsh and unforgiving but he had been wrong. It was because she spoke up that they lived at all. It was because she was who she was, because she didn't fit the mold that he was pulled back from the brink. She didn't fit the mold of the ideal noble wife at the time, and he loved her for that. And he needed her to do the same for him. He wouldn't be that night traveling around the countryside, leaving her for months. He didn't need glory. He had her. Eric and Enid kissed. All around them, the soldiers watching the pair said, that was, that was beautiful. Well, it was too bad they had to kill him. Eric rose painfully, drawing his sword. With Enid by his side, they would fight to the end. But thankfully, they didn't have to. When a certain baron of the count heard that he had been summoned to the man's wedding with Enid, Guivret the Short arrived with an army to free his friend, Enid. Men with swords killed other men with swords, and Eric and Enid escaped, together, as equals. This is where we'll stop today, but this isn't the end of their story. It does kind of keep going, where Eric, learning of a supposedly unbeatable trial at a nearby castle can't resist going and fighting the knight who has killed everyone, bringing Enid with him. Bringing the story full circle, the knight at the castle that was challenging everyone was listening to his lady, who, unlike in Eric and Enid's misunderstanding, wanted her knight to be the best in the land, and straight-up murder challengers in a garden. Anyway, tragically, Eric's father died before he made it home. But Eric and Enid were made king and queen, and, hopefully, vowed to talk things over before dragging the other on a death quest at the first sign of trouble. It's hard to say what the message of the story was. Was it chastising Enid for speaking out of turn? Or praising her disobedience to her husband's arbitrary and dangerous rules? We went with the latter the reading I obviously prefer, but I think that given the time period, you could really read the story either way. Regardless of some practical advice, if you get in a fight with your spouse or a significant other, and their response is to put you both in lethal danger to prove a point, that's not healthy or good. I like to think that, given just how much bodily harm and how closely he came to death, Sir Eric hopefully would agree with me on that one at the end of the story, and would just talk it out. Another long one this week, We're swimming in stories at the moment, so I don't want to take two weeks when I don't need to. But if you'd like to support the show and get ad-free and bonus episodes, check out MythPodcast.com slash membership or Myths and Legends Plus in the Apple Podcasts app. The creatures this week are the Elephant Men from Mississippi in the United States. I'll be real. I accept the possibility of space aliens... But it wasn't until I read the story of the Elephant Men from the 70s in Mississippi that I was like, if there are aliens, that could be what they're like. To start, the Elephant Men are neither elephants nor men. They are space aliens. Maybe? In 1973, two men were out fishing at the river when lights filled the sky in front of them. Maybe they didn't know what was about to go down, but they lingered long enough to see three travelers descend from the craft. The Elephant Men earned their namesake from their gray, wrinkled skin. And that is absolutely where these similarities end. They were unmoving, save for their arms. They apparently had carrot ears. And at the end of their arms, they had crab claws. And once again, all this is just like gift-wrapped in wrinkly elephant skin. They allegedly took up the fishermen into their arms, all officer and a gentleman style, and brought them up into their spaceship where, while they jammed fingers down their throat until they choked... And a football sized eye scanned them, a telepathic voice assured them that they were safe. Because those are the beings that you can trust to level with you, the ones that kidnap you and jam fingers down your throat. They were released, and after taking a few swigs of whiskey to calm their nerves, they drove to a nearby Air Force base, where the Air Force just let them go, calling the local police. The police also likely didn't believe them, and after hours of questioning, let the men go as well. The older one of the bunch told the story to whoever would listen. He died in 2011 and that's when the younger one took up his mission, publishing two books that I linked in the show notes about his experience on that fateful night. Look, like I said, I accept the possibility of space aliens and I think if they do exist, they are way closer to something like this than the little green men. It is completely weird. It doesn't make sense. It is so bizarre that I'm not saying it has to be true, but it does feel more likely. Anyway, not saying that the Pascagoula Historical Society feels the same way, but if you visit Pascagoula, you can find a plaque that was placed in 2019, 46 years after the carrot-eared, elephant-skinned people scooped up some fishermen to do some space science. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.